0: Good afternoon to all of you. Looks like we have a very good crowd today. I notice we have a few people that have not been here before, and uh, a few guests. At least I ran into one guest there. It's hard to recognize people you haven't seen for a while when they're wearing a mask, and I guess that's why bank robbers wear masks. <laughs> and I see one out here right now, one of the bank robbers. <laughs> well, greetings to all of you. The Feast of Trumpets is only two weeks away, and the Feast of Tabernacles comes two weeks after that. And in between, we have the Day of Atonement and following the Feast of Tabernacles, the Last Great Day, as I think we're all well aware of. This past week, we recorded three programs, as was mentioned in the bulletin there, and one of the one that I did was on uh, hope in tough times. We give a lot of bad news in our world, as we rightfully should. If you read the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, there's a lot of call for repentance, showing the sins of the people. But interspersed there, there's good news. Isaiah, the second chapter, first four verses, talk about a time when The guns or the weapons of warfare will be turned into instruments of agriculture. We have the 11th chapter of Isaiah, and I'm sure that someone will talk about that during the Feast of Tabernacles when we have the lion and the lamb dwelling together and and so forth. And so we have these good things interspersed with the call for repentance because of our sins. And we have... A lot of discouraged people today. So, at least two of the three, if not all three, of the programs we recorded this last week had a lot of good news in them. And the one I did was on uh, hope in tough times. And although I did touch on the feast, in fact, that was the subject. There was the feast, the last four festivals, and I didn't focus on on the last or the first six of the trumpets, but mostly the seventh one. Uh, these festivals show us that there is hope for mankind. It begins with the Passover, and that gives hope that our sins can be forgiven. Of course, we have to know what sin is. That's very important. And we have to repent of those sins. We have to come out of sin, as shown by the Days of Unleavened Bread. That so We must leave Egypt behind. The Feast of Pentecost shows that God is working with a certain number of people today, and that's wonderful news for you and me and for those who do come to repentance during this age. We'll have the opportunity to be the bride of Christ, a wonderful privilege. And that's no doubt why we have so much difficulty in our world that we have to push against, because it is a very different world today than it will be after Christ returns. And we have to learn to push against it. I did hear some very good comments, by the way, on Mr. McNair's uh, telecast this week. Several people mentioned when uh, we were talking here. And uh, the subject of Big Brother, is he coming? I was even mentioning to my wife, I, I don't normally watch the telecast till Sunday morning, although I have reviewed it previous to this, but you forget after a while. But I was mentioning to her how much Big Brother knows about you and me. For example, this last week, we had to notarize some things. We used to be able to go into the bank or into uh, Mrs. Pyle's office or one of the other people that work in, in uh, uh, the the legal department, and we would just sign something and then have to sign you know, the, the document and then a book there, and then they would take care of the notarization. Now we do it online. And to make sure that they know who you are, and by the way, they have a live person on the other end. What a great job that has got to be. You live at home, work at home, and somebody calls you and you just do the notarization at home and they pay you so much. I I did talk to one or two of them over the The months we've been doing this to learn a little bit about what it's about. So if anybody wants to be a notary and do it online, great job. Uh, Looks like it. You can work around your kids. You can hear the kids in the background or dogs barking and different things like that. But nevertheless, to know who you are, they give you two minutes to answer five questions. And I'm amazed at what they know about me. They know where I lived 30 years ago. They know where I lived 20 years ago. They have the address and you have to confirm the city or they give you the city and you have to confirm the address. They know what kind of car I inherited from my mother when she died. So my name was on the title. That goes back to 2001. They know that my name is on my wife's car that she drives today. I didn't even know that. I thought maybe it was only her name on it. It's amazing what they know about you and me. And I think this is very important because this must be from some official stuff. I know that I didn't give it to them because I didn't remember what year my mother's car was, 1997. Now you know it don't know the kind of car uh, or my wife's car is 2014 I didn't know that that's why I know I didn't give them the information but they knew that we live in a very interesting world to say the least and what you and I put on well I don't put it on social media because I don't do social media but what you put on there you better be willing to know that someplace in the future somebody knows what your politics is or what they think it is. They know a church you belong to. They know a whole lot about all of us. And you may not be on social media, but somebody else who knows you, and they, they do all the connections. I think we're, we're not realizing how dangerous the world is and how much freedom and how much information we are giving out. But anyway, We live in tough times. But I showed during that telecast about tough times, how the feasts are good news during those tough times. But in today's sermon, I'm going to show a different aspect of these festivals and holy days that are coming up. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time going into details on them, but I want to focus on one aspect of them and how that they are expressions of God's love for his creation, for mankind, and how we must learn that same godly love. Love is a word that's thrown about a lot today, but with little understanding, and there's way too little of it as the song goes. What the world needs now is love, sweet love, and so on. There's just too little of And that is true. But mankind doesn't even know what love is. Now, we know that in the Bible, different words are used for love. There's heroes, which is more of a uh, uh, sexual love, you might say. There is philia, which is a brotherly love. And then there is agape love, which is a God-plain love. And that's something that we need to strive for, that same God-plain love. But not surprisingly, the devil perverts the meaning of love. He doesn't want us to understand what real love is. And so he gives a very selfish approach to love. When we say, I love this person, especially if we're a teenager, no offense to our teenagers, and even... Those of us who, before we get married, a lot of times what we really mean is, this person pleases me. And it's only after we've been married a period of time where we learn really to have total outgoing concern for the other person. Now, as a teenager, as a young person, you can have that kind of true love if you're concerned about the well-being of that person, which means that you're going to respect that individual. If you're a guy, you're not going to do something to that individual that could hurt her, or vice versa. And so godly love can be expressed in that way even before you're married. But we really learn to love in the marriage and the family relationship, because we have to learn how to take care of the other person, as I have pointed out before, I think, here. Not in this room, but I think I pointed out before in a sermon that my parents could have committed the perfect crime when we drove down the Alaskan Highway in the winter of 1951, a little bit before some of your time. I'd be shocked how many people were not around back then, but I think in in the room. But a lot of people were not back, you know, around 1951. It wasn't much of a highway. It had only been built a few years. And unless you know the geography, you wouldn't understand that we didn't hit paved road until someplace between Calgary and Edmonton, or vice versa, coming down. And I actually found a picture in an album that I inherited going into the city of Calgary. It has a sign. It's the major highway going in there, and they hadn't paved that part yet. It looks like a mud trail. Amazing. But I was sick all the time, because going through the mountains before we got to the the flat level, we had to switch back, and I would get car sick. And it happened very quickly. And you know I'd usually get sick in the car. And I'm thinking my parents should have thrown me out on the side into the snowbank. The wolves would have taken care of the rest. When we got to Texas, they could have said, oh, he died in Alaska. The people ask Alaska, they could have said, oh, well, he died in San Antonio. And it uh, would have been the perfect crime. But why does a parent take care of a child who keeps throwing up in the car? They learn love, don't they? They care. And every parent knows what I'm talking about. But love isn't when it makes your heart beat in a positive way. Real love is when you have to do things that you really would rather not do, but you do it because you care for that person. And God brings that those situations to light, to where we learn what real outgoing concern is. Love in this world is selfish. We even use it in very selfish terms, like, I love pizza. Now, please, that's an example. I got to be careful because if I I used some dessert, then people would be bringing me dessert, and so I have to be very careful about those things. In ministry, we have to be careful what we say. Otherwise, people think that you love this, and which you do probably, but they keep, you know, bringing it to you. And then, you you know. (laughs) So, let's say I love pizza. Well. Do I have outgoing concern for pizza, or what I really mean is pizza pleases me? Now, I'm not saying we can't say I love pizza. I'm not saying that you can't say that. But I think it is good to think about what we're really saying about that. Because how we use language shapes and forms the way that we think. And the left in this country understands that. That's why they don't describe abortion as murder. They describe it as a woman's choice. And there's so much about the language the way that the left uses, and Satan is also very good about that. In fact, he inspires some of that. And so we use language in a way that is not really appropriate. But when we say, I love pizza, you know, do we have outgoing concern for it? Because real love is outgoing concern. That was a revolutionary idea when I came into the church. I'd never even thought about the definition of love. But love is having outgoing concern for another person. And that's why we try to protect one another here. And wearing masks and so forth. And by the way, those of us who are older have a problem. Our ears are not very good. So what do we do? We get up close and we shout to each other. (laughs) That's probably not the best idea. So we need to, you know, practice social distancing even there as much as we can. But our voice may be softer and our ears aren't so good. But we want to care for one another and take care of one another as much as possible. If you go to John, the 15th chapter, John 15 and verse 12... Notice what it says here. It says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friend. To lay down one's life for his friend. You know, two people dating before marriage, when they lay down their lives, in other words, they... They care for the other person enough not to do something that would be harmful to that person. But they care enough that they forsake their own desires for the sake of the other person, as well as themselves in reality. But we lay down our lives for our friends on a daily basis in many different ways. Whether we care for one another and serve one another, whatever way it may be. Over in Philippians, the second chapter, it shows us how Christ loved us. We are to love one another as Christ loved us and lay down his life for us. Notice over in Philippians 1, I know you're very familiar with this, but it says in verse 1, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit... If any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. He says, let nothing, nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than himself. I was reminded of this this last week. We had to combine two festival sites. California's Governor Newsom has really clamped down on everything again in California to the point that we simply cannot hold a feast in California, or at least most of the counties there. Now, we're only a month away from the feast, and I know we did prepare a feast here in a week's time when a hurricane hit in Hilton Head several years ago, but it's much more difficult now. I'm very thankful we hadn't planned for 400 people in California. We will have maybe 175, plus or minus a bit. What do we do with those people? Well, the easiest thing is to move them to Utah, where it'll raise the number above what it was, but it gives us the flexibility because Utah has more room and they have a second room, and so we can just move all those people up to Utah. And I was very pleased because one of the ministers out there, one of our ministers, had let the other one know that, just let me know how I can help. In other words, it wasn't with the attitude, okay, well let's divide things up, we're equals, we're having two face, fee sites, but with humility, he said, how can I help? You know, that's a wonderful thing. I am very pleased to hear that. And I hear that from others, other individuals, whether they be ministers or whether they be members, how may I help? I think that Mr. Ames had a I don't know, it was a sermon or something on that. He talked about that in a sermon. Don't remember which one it was, but uh, you can check out his sermons there. How may I help you? What a, a wonderful attitude that is. There was no ego there. It was how may I help you. It says here, let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. In other words Yes, we have to look out for our own interest. You have to take care of yourself or you won't be able to do anything in life. But to look out for the other person's well-being, the other person's interest. That's the attitude that we should have. And it says in verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then it goes on to show the mind of Christ, of how he gave himself for you and for me. He came down here. From his great power and glory, where he lived for all of eternity and where he created this whole universe. God used the one who became Jesus Christ to create all things. It says there in Colossians, the first chapter, verses 15 through 18. He created all things visible and invisible, or the principalities or powers. All those things were created by him and for him. And so, he came down here to be a human being in a hot part of the world, dry part of the world. If you've ever been to Israel uh, in the summer, I've not been there in the summer, I've been there in uh, October. It was hot. It was tiring. That was for the feast. And down by the Dead Sea, it gets real hot and humid. So, He did that for you and for me. And he says we need to have the same kind of love. This word, love, is very important. And you can see why Satan wants to confuse us about the meaning of love. Because that single word defines God. It defines what God is. Notice over in John, First John. 1 John, the fourth chapter. Again, familiar scripture. We're not covering anything that's all that difficult here. Well, it's not difficult to understand. It's difficult to apply. But in 1 John 4 and verse 8, he says, "He He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So, if we don't love... We don't know God. And again, love is not pitter-patter-pitter-patter. Now, emotion may accompany love, but emotion does not define love, as almost everybody seems to think. I say everybody, not you necessarily, but the world thinks that you are in love when your heart is beating fast and your blood pressure rises and so forth. That's what the world thinks. But that's not the definition of love that we're seeing. In verse 16 it says, We have known and believed the love that God has for us. Notice that, that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. So if we want Christ abiding in us, if we want Uh, to abide in him, as it were, let's use the other side there, then we have to love. If we don't have love, he's not abiding in us, in us and him. Now, this one word, love, can be refined or expounded upon. We know that the Ten Commandments show us the love of God, our love toward God, and love toward neighbor. And I'm not going to, to go into that, but I think that we understand the first four commandments show how we love God, how we show respect to God. We don't use his name in vain, and we remember his Sabbath day, and and uh, we don't use idols, and we don't have some other God before him. But we also know that uh, the last six commandments show us how we love our neighbor. And the statutes expound upon Love of neighbor it isn't just what's given there, but how it's expounded upon. I went into a little bit of that in the Bible study uh, Wednesday evening on First Timothy, and I could go to that. Let me go to that verse. Let me go to Exodus, and then I'll go there. Okay, Exodus the thirty-fourth chapter. Exodus thirty-four. This shows us the very nature. Of God it shows us his name what his name means in verse 5 this is an incredibly important passage of Scripture because it's found throughout the Bible in very similar terms not exactly the word the same way but very close it's one of the most maybe the most quoted passage in the Old Testament it's really there a lot in principle but it says, now the Lord descended in cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. This is the name of the Lord. This is the character of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord or the eternal, the eternal God, merciful and gracious, merciful and gracious, long suffering. I like that better than patience. We often say patience and long-suffering are the same thing, and it really is, I guess. But when it says long-suffering, that means you you suffer long, if you think about the meaning of it. It's pretty incredible when you think about it, long-suffering. We want patience, and we want it right now. We don't want to have to wait when we're sick or something. We want To be healed right now but god says that his nature is long suffering he's willing to endure for a long period of time abounding in goodness and truth abounding full of goodness and truth keeping mercy for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin And it says, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. As we know, sometimes the sins of parents are passed on to their children and then the grandchildren and and that sort of thing. In other words, he is abounding in mercy, but he's saying here that that doesn't mean that we can just do anything we want to and he's going to overlook everything. That's not it at all. but when we look at that, we see a description of the love of God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands. We see that nature of God. Over in First Timothy, First Timothy. We covered this in the Bible study, but I know that a lot of people don't follow the Bible studies on Wednesday night. I, I think it's always good to do so. We've had a lot of good Bible studies over the, the years. But in verse 8 it says, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate. Lawless, the person who, we, we think of that in terms of that person is a lawless person. He, he doesn't abide by law in any way, shape, or form, whether it be man's law or certainly God's law. He says, an insubordinate, that's one who is unwilling to yield authority. For the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murders of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, liars, perjurers. Now, when you look at this, it just looks like words that are thrown out there. But when you look at it carefully, you see that he's going right down the Ten Commandments. We are not to profane the name of God. We are not to profane it by using idols or having another God before the true God. We're not to profane his Sabbath day. He says here, for the unholy and that has to do with separating certain things for holy purpose or a right purpose the unholy and profane for murders of fathers and mothers that covers the fifth commandment and the sixth commandment we should honor our mothers and fathers and we are not to commit murder for manslayers for fornicators that's the next commandment against adultery uh, for sodomites again for kidnappers, that's someone who steals. Steals somebody's child, the worst worst thing that could ever happen to any parent. For perjurers, or as liars and those who uh, give false testimony, that's the next commandment. And he says, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. So all of these things define what true love is. This is showing what is the opposite of true love. But love is one word, but it is further defined by other words. We have 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. We call it the love chapter. And when we look at it carefully, again, it's not hard to understand, but it's pretty hard to put into action says in verse 1, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I've become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, Paul says, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor. Imagine that. There are people who give tremendous sums of money. Oftentimes they want everybody to know they're giving it to them. So if I'll leave names out in this case, one particular very wealthy individual some years ago donated what fifty billion dollars or whatever it was, million or billion dollars to the United Nations less and such fund, they don't do it quietly. They want people to see. But even if one does it quietly, it was done only to make myself feel better rather than really to help out, then he says here that um, I am as nothing. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor and though I give my body to be burned, in other words, you could be a martyr, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Now, it dis- What love is. It suffers long. We've already seen that in the character of God. It's kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. Think social media. Do we ever see even members of the church behaving rudely on social media? does not seek its own. It doesn't have to have its own way. It's not provoked. Wow, it's not provoked. You know, I've not been on social media, but I was on the CompuServe forum some years ago. Mr. Lambert Greer was on it too, and a couple other individuals for the Global Church of God just kind of defend. This was after we came out of Worldwide, and there were a number of issues. And most of the people that actually write on these forums... uh, you know, they're, they're the minority. It's the lurkers out there. They're watching. And uh, it was felt that we needed somebody to defend the, the church at that time. And so I got on it a little bit. And I, I learned one lesson, and that was don't ever read it just before you go to bed. Because there's something about the Internet that you can cut and paste. And... It really brings up the worst of us because you take some little thing that somebody said that you can disagree with and then you paste it there and then you tear it apart. It's so unfair in so many ways because it misses the whole context of something. And you can be so anonymous, even if they know your name, you're over here and they're over there and and nobody knows you necessarily. And after a few months doing some things, I decided to get off that forum. That was the early form of social media, you might say. And I came back six months later to look at it, and you know what I found? It was like a soap opera. It was it was covering the same thing, you know. Mary has just divorced Sam again. Uh, it, if, if you watch soap operas, I, I didn't, you know, I wasn't a big soap opera buff, but you know, sometimes you're sick or you're in a automobile dealership, and you know, and, and you see it's the same old stuff that goes over and over. The theme there are only so many themes, and they involve murder and they involve adultery usually, and you know this sort of thing. And it just keeps coming back. Well, the same arguments were there on the CompuServe forum six months later. Nobody changed anything. They just kept rehashing the same old stories. You know, it doesn't pride itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely. Those who are on social media have a responsibility, if they are members of the church, to behave in a civil manner. It's not wrong to defend a doctrine, or if there's a purpose behind it, if there's some, something worthwhile. Uh, it's not wrong to defend somebody, for that matter. But we should not behave rudely and caustically with put-downs as somebody that we may not agree with. You know, Satan has so stirred up our world that where we are divided into either or, one or the other. There is no middle ground. Oh, this person is a Republican, so they're wrong. This person is a Democrat, so they can't have anything right. Nobody is all right all the time. Nobody is all wrong. Well, I, yeah, I think we could say nobody's all wrong all the time. Everybody is right some of the time and wrong some of the time. Now, they may be wrong most of the time, in your view, or my view. But notice how Satan is, what he's doing. He is stirring up animosity and hatred, one for another. When we look at this, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, is not provoked. How easily provoked are you? How easily provoked am I? And it says, thinks no evil. Does it think the worst or does it try to understand what the other person is saying and respond appropriately to, to that? Does not rejoice in iniquity. Do we rejoice when somebody gets caught doing something that they shouldn't be doing because they are our enemy? Does not rejoice uh, in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. you can read the rest of it. I think we're very familiar with it. let's notice over in John the third chapter, very, very familiar scripture. In fact, we have a booklet on the subject John three sixteen For God so loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Very familiar. You know, Satan has used this scripture because it is such a profound scripture. And he has deceived the world about just about everything that is found in this scripture. As the booklet points out, for God, they don't even know who God is. They're confused about that. So love, they don't know what love is. The world. So how many supposed Christians think that, well, we're going to go to heaven and all these other people, unless they repent, they're going to hell and they're going to fry for all of eternity. You know, they they simply do not know anything about this scripture. Except well, well God just loves us. But He gave. The Father gave. They leave the Father out of it entirely. His only begotten Son. What does that mean? Does that mean that nobody else will be begotten? As though He is the only one forever? That whoever believes in Him, what does that mean? Belief. Should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, this word, or this statement here, can be tied in with the Holy Days. Notice the connection between Passover and John 3.16. Isn't the Passover what John 3.16 is talking about, at least in part? That the Lamb of God shed his blood, just as the blood of a lamb in Egypt was shed and placed over the, the household, you might say, that the firstborn would live. And so Christ shed his blood to pay the penalty for your sins and for my sins. Thank God. Because without that, we're dead. We're finished. Notice 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7. I won't, I won't turn there for lack of time, but it says, for even Christ, our Passover was sacrificed for us. Very clearly tying Passover and the sacrifice of Christ. So the love of God is expressed in the Passover service in that God gave his only begotten son to pay the penalty for you and me. And just as with the first Passover, God's lamb, his blood was shed for us while we were still in slavery. Still enslaved. Notice Romans, the fifth chapter, Romans 5 and verse 5. It says, now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Notice, God's love is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us for when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's for you and me. The ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's Passover. Now, it goes on to show that now that we have been justified by his blood, we'll be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So Christ must come into us and we must, in other words, a couple things there. We put sin out of our lives and then, of course, uh, we, we must do our part to repent. But then God gives us his Holy Spirit at Pentecost. So this is all tied together. It shows the love of God. It shows us John 3.16 in that sense. The love of God. While we were still sinners, He died for us. And then eventually He enters into our minds and our hearts, writes His law in our hearts and minds, and we can take on His character, His love. We learn to think as He thinks. Now, that's easy academically. But what's hard is when our emotions get involved in it. The anger that Satan would love to stir up within us. The impatience that we might have. The revenge that we might want to have because our pride was hurt in some way. This is not easy. This is very difficult to overcome all of these things. Academically, it's easy. But in actual fact, it's not so easy. God's love is shown in John 3.16 and appoints past Passover to the resurrections. Why did he give his life that we might have eternal life? Now, that is not all that important to a young person when you're 16, I'm not picking on young people, please understand. I was one. Some people would say I still am one, uh, act like one. They, they, they don't think that I have the hair of a young person, but, uh, or the body of a young person, but, you know, we, we, we all are young at one time or another. And so I'm certainly not picking on anyone, but you think different when you're young. You think This life goes on forever. Academically, you know that, well, yeah, I'm going to look like granddad someday. But that's so far away. And it is, in a way. But when you look back, it happens so quickly. And pretty soon you're talking like your father or your grandfather. Where have all the years gone? Kids grow up so fast. All those things that our parents used to say especially our dads, now we're saying. It's just hard to believe how fast time goes by. Life is short. But trumpets, the Feast of Trumpets, is an important day for you and me. We, we'd like to skip over those first six trumpets, wouldn't we? We hope we'll be in a place of protection and safety someplace in the wilderness. Well, that's what we hope as it says there in Revelation, the 12th chapter, that the woman is taken to uh, her place in the wilderness. That's where we hope to be. But who wants to rejoice over asteroids and super volcanoes exploding, destroying a third of the ships and and all these things that are described there in the blowing of the six trumpets. And even the seventh trumpet has some... Um, ramifications to it, warfare and so forth, but at the sounding of the seventh trumpet, you and I, whether we're alive and are changed in the moment in a twinkling of an eye, or whether we are resurrected out of the grave, are going to have a different kind of life, eternal life. And again, when we think about eternal life, We've got. To, we we cannot think of it in terms of, pardon the younger folks. They used to be Casper the Friendly Ghost, or they had various other ones where you had these ghosts, and and you didn't want to be one of those because that wasn't real life. Eternal life is real life. You can be Superman. You can be Superwoman. You can walk through walls. You can listen in on. Well, we don't want to do that. Um, we, we, can, we can do it all. No pain, no suffering. I always thought about creating a fish so big that I would have a hard time catching it as a spirit being. Uh, but that's kind of naive. I don't think that we're going to be interested in catching fish when we're spirit beings. But whatever it is that you want to do as a spirit being, if you can do it in this life, you could do it in the next life. Now, I think that probably some people think that, well, there's certain things you could. Well, let's, uh, let's not jump to conclusions on things. You know, God begets us, and there must be great joy when, when he begets a new son or daughter. Maybe things are different, but there's great joy. And the angels rejoice even in heaven when one comes to repentance. So there are things that we can do as spirit beings that are wonderful. So trumpets is very important for us. You know, the Feast of Tabernacles, at some point people are going to be resurrected. And and we could speculate all day long, and that's all that we could do basically is speculate. Will people be resurrected at the end of the millennium? so that they will be spirit beings to help out with all those people that come up in the the second resurrection. And those people that come up in the second resurrection, the book of life is open, so they're going to have the opportunity for spirit life. So when you think about it, the love of God is shown in trumpets and feasts of tabernacles and last great day. He's calling some now he's calling some during millennium he calls some during I say some everyone will have that opportunity and then the last great day everyone who's alive at that time will have that opportunity. it's a wonderful thing that God is doing. We read in first Corinthians the 15th chapter and verses 22 and 23 that each one is going to be resurrected in his own order Christ and then the first fruits uh, at his his coming. But each one is resurrected in his order, Christ first of all, and then those are Christ's at his coming. But we also know that from Revelation, the 20th chapter, that there is a second resurrection, and even a third resurrection, which is, uh, we might call that, but, but it's not a resurrection to life. God has not written off our enemies. In Matthew 5, Matthew 5, and verse 43. Notice what it says here. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, that's a very interesting point because I think that a lot of people think that that's part of the Old Testament law. You should love your Your your, your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, the first part is you shall love your neighbor. That's found over in Leviticus 19 and verse 18, commanded to, to love our neighbor. But the other part, and hate your enemy, is not found in the scriptures. That's something that I think the world has taught us that, well, all this is Old Testament stuff, that's bad and Christ doing away with all the Old Testament stuff. No, the law to love our neighbor is found there in Leviticus 19, verse 18. As Christ told the individual who asked him about what is the most important commandment, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and being, and love your neighbor as yourself. On those two hang all the commandments. God's law taught love of enemy. Notice very quickly here in Exodus, the 23rd chapter. Exodus 23. And we'll begin in verse 1. He tells us certain things we're not to do because these would be hatred. He says, you shall not circulate a false report. Do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. You shall not follow a crowd to do evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after many to pervert justice. So you are to judge righteous ju- just judgment. You're not to show partiality to a poor man in his dispute and Other scriptures show or to uh, a rich man or against a rich man, one or the other. He says, now notice verse 4, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. So here's your enemy, and he's saying, love your enemy. Bring his ox or his donkey back to him. In our world, it'd be his dog or cat, more likely, If you see a donkey of one who hates you, someone who hates you, someone who despises you, you might say, and it's lying under its burden, and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. So God is showing here that we are to love even our enemies and their time of affliction, their time when they're needing someone to help them. That's God's law. He says you shall love your enemies as well as love uh, your neighbor. In Luke, the sixth chapter, Luke 6, and verse 27, but I say to you who hear, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Are we able to do good to those who hate us? Bless those who curse you. There are those who may curse you online or at work. Where he says, bless those who curse you and pray for those who spitefully use you. If there's anything that we really hate is when somebody uses us. I've heard people say that that person used me. It says to him who strikes you on one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. We've had sermonettes on that, and I won't try to go into that now. It says, Give to everyone who asks you, and from him who takes away from away your goods, do not ask them back. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. It's the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But if you love those who love you, what credit is it to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive... Uh, It says, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. Verse 35, but love your enemies. Do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the unthankful and evil. So this is the mind of God. God. This is what he wants us to learn. In John 13, verses 34 and 35, it says, the new commandment I give you, that you should love one another as I have loved you. He says, by this all men will know you if you have love one for another. You know, love is, is, is so, so easy to talk about. I think sometimes even in the church, we make fun of those outside. they all just love. That's all they talk about is love. But yes, they don't understand what true love is in many cases. It, it is Satan that wants us to think of other things as being more important. But when you look at the writing of John as he got older, and you read toward the end of his life, he talked a lot about love. And most older people do. Because after a lifetime of seeing everything, you begin to boil it down. If we don't have love, we have nothing. And yet Satan is stirring up so much strife in this world. He is so dividing our nation. And brethren, that's rubbing off on church members, very sadly. Look at our nation. Over in Ephesians, the second chapter, Ephesians 2. Again, very familiar scripture, but I want to read a little bit of what follows. Ephesians 2 talks about the prince of the power of the air, the one who directs the course of this world. That's in verse 2. Verse 3, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as others. But notice verse 4, but God who is rich in mercy. God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Now, think about that. He, he says, even when we were dead in trespasses. Remember the Apostle Paul? I, uh, I even read that the other night about how he was a uh, violently arrogant man. That's how he described himself. He persecuted the saints. He, he brought them in. He stood by when Stephen was stoned to death in an illawful murder. Well, I guess all murder is unlawful in that sense, but in other words, it wasn't properly tried. A mob killed him. And yet Paul described himself as a, an arrogant individual, a violently arrogant individual, but he says that God forgave him because he did it in ignorance. Now think about that. What if you had been living at that time? What would we have done when this man has persecuted the church violently and hailed people into prison and then God calls him? That's hard to forgive, isn't it? Especially if one of your relatives had been one that he had persecuted or your best friend. You know, God recognizes that the whole world is going to have an opportunity. When we go through the feast days and we see that the great white throne judgment at the end of the millennium, that all of these people who have, you know, we've been in contact with, some were our neighbors, some were good friends, but not all of them. Some of those people out there on the Internet who are just ripping and tearing people apart, the hate blogs, all that sort of thing. But some of those people are going to come up in the second resurrection. I don't know which ones will which ones won't because some of them knew the truth and they've left it, and that's in God's hands. But notice that... Uh, The second resurrection shows the love of God, that he cares for every single human being. Over in Jude, the first chapter, Jude 1 and verse 12, he says, these are spots. He describes the uh, those individuals who defile the flesh. They speak evil of dignitaries. They reject authority. Uh, They... They, they do all these things, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah. He describes all those, those things there. And he says, woe to them, for they've gone, verse 11, in the way of Cain. They've run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Then verse 12 it says, these are spots or blemishes in your love feasts. Now most of the commentaries point you over to the 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians but they don't point out that that's the Passover that they were celebrating but our love feast the feasts of of God are to be love feasts they're they're love feasts first of all because God shows us his love in them but what else do we have there well we know that we go to the feast to learn to fear the Lord our God always what does that mean to come to respect and to take on God's mind, his way of thinking, very different from this world. And so we go out of the way at the feast to, you know, tip the waitresses and to tip the, the maids that clean our rooms and, and, and to be generous in those things and to be patient when, you know, there's a busy restaurant. Although I don't know if there will be busy restaurants today. But they might be very short-handed, even though they're social distancing and so forth. They may be very busy. There may be all kinds of things like that. And, and so we, we, we show love. And we're patient with one another. And we think about one another, that person that may not be a part of our family, because sometimes we get off in our family and we forget everybody else. Or those people we enjoy being around, We need to stretch out and we need to take care of others during that time. We need to learn the very character of God during the Feast of Tabernacles. Yes, we have more money than we normally would. God wants to see how we're going to use it. Are we going to use it selfishly or are we going to use it to serve others? We need to think about those things. God shows us His love in these wonderful holy days. But he expects us to learn that same love, on the other hand. You know, the, the Day of Atonement pictures the removal of Satan. And Satan is the one that stirs up the attitude of murder. In John 8, he was a murderer. And the truth is not in him. In Matthew, the fifth chapter, verses 21 and 22, Matthew 5, 21 and 22, shows that hatred is is a spirit of murder. It doesn't say it in those exact words, but you can discern that from it. It is the spirit of murder. And 1 John, the second chapter, 1 John 2, verses 8 to 11, it shows us that when we hate, it blinds our minds. That's why people do things that are totally irrational. They are so filled with hatred whether it be temporary insanity, you might say, or whether it be something that's been building up over a long period of time, that hatred takes over to where they do something that is totally irrational. They they shoot somebody or they run somebody over with a car or whatever it might be. They do something really dumb and stupid, and, and then their life is ruined and they take their own life many times. For what? Because they were angry. Because hatred blinds the mind. That's what it tells us there in 1 John 2, verses 8 through 11. Well, I've run out of time. I was going to get down to brass tacks. Such as political wrangling. Exodus 22, 28 says, You shall not curse a ruler of your people. Okay, brethren, do we do that? We may not use curse words. That idiot? That stupid jerk? Do we say things like that? Read what happened with Paul in Acts 23, verses 1 to 5. He was slapped by this individual at the word of the high priest, and he called him whitewashed, what, sepulchre? And he said, are you reviling the the high priest? He said, oh, I didn't know that's who it was. But the law says, Exodus 22, verse 28, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. With the the foolishness that's going on in our political world, that's a tough one, isn't it? Because most of us are on one side or the other. In other words, we identify more with one side or the other. We see the politics of it all. We see the manipulation. We see the lies. We see the destruction of our country as a result of not being able to work together. You know, I've got an article here, and I don't have time to go into it. It's called The Guns of November. But the bottom line is it's saying that When the election takes place, November the 3rd, if there's not a clear winner, and with all this mail-in voting, I don't care how good the post office is, somebody has to process that, and, you know, hanging chads, and this thing could drag on for quite a long time. And the more it drags on, with all the people buying guns, is saying, look out, the guns of November. In the month of May, gun sales rose 71, I'm sorry, the month of April rose 71 percent over the previous year. In May, it was 80 percent. In June, it was 145 percent. Do you know how many guns we have in this country? For every 100 people, you have 120 guns. That was in 2017. And look how many people have bought guns since then. We have far more guns than we have people. Now, it's true that some people own a lot of guns and some people own own no guns. But there are a lot of guns out here. A lot of women are buying guns. A lot of other people are buying guns for protection. But what happens? Are we buying guns to protect ourselves? Are we going to get caught up in the mayhem that, that surely is coming at some point in time? That article is basically saying that we are heading for a second civil war. And that's something that I think that some of us have recognized for quite a long time. And civil wars have a way of causing one to choose one side or the other. We cannot do that, brethren. You know, we have to love we have to love all people. We cannot be prejudiced. We cannot be right wing, left wing, we have to recognize the big picture of God's holy days and how they show that God loves all people and He's working something out, and the person that you hate today could be one of the strongest servants of God in the future just like the apostle Paul was we're told that we are to learn to fear the eternal our God always God gives us these feasts to demonstrate his love for us we're to learn to fear the eternal God our God and to keep these days I'd like to end with 1 Corinthians 16 Verse 13 to 14. It says, watch, stand fast in faith. That's 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13 and 14. Watch, stand fast in faith. Be brave. Be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. Let all that you do be done with love. And may we reflect that love from the heart in everything that we do. So, brethren, let's reflect the love of God. back.